Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. It's Jay Scott here from The Hook, the Ultimate Rock Community Podcast. Just wanted to do a little bit of an introduction for our episode airing today. It's with Ari Carnezes, who is way passionate about music, as I am, as most of you are. We had a great conversation about Chris Cornell, Soundgarden, Audio Slave. I think you'll find it really interesting and a lot of fun. You can find her on Twitter at anight1990. You can find her on YouTube at American Nightmare. And also her blog as well, which is really cool. It's Ari's Moody Tunes. It's moodytunes.home.blog. Please support her. I think you'll find what she writes and what she talks about as very real, very raw, and really honest. Hope you enjoy this episode. Let's go. Scott, you are listening to The Hook, the ultimate rock community podcast. Hope everyone's having a great day today. Our guest today, our contributor today is Ari at Night 1990 the Twitter feed, and also on YouTube at American Nightmare. How you doing, Ari? Good, good. I'm doing really well. Awesome. Thank you. Awesome. I, uh, I appreciate you doing this. I know we've kind yeah, of chatted before. Yeah, we've chatted ab- about what we want to talk about. But before we get into that, our first question to anyone who comes on the show the first time is in regards to the essence of the podcast, and that is the hook. Like every great song has a hook that sucks you in. Every rock and roll fan has a moment where a song, an album, a band, a performance suck them in and hook them on rock and roll. What was your moment? What hooked, what hooked you on rock and roll? Oh, uh, for me, um, going way back, I would definitely say um, uh, music from the 70s and 80s, like ACDC, um, Twisted Sister. I grew up on both those bands, uh, thanks to my dad. Uh, Soundgarden, of course. Um my uh, my dad was actually kind of a glam metal guy, and my mom was more of a grunge, you know, fan. So, um, uh, so that was, um, yeah, right, right. It was like you know, opposites attract, right? Right, <laughs> so, right, exactly. Um, so I grew up with a very um, uh, a really big variety of rock music, 
and uh, it was just what I was raised on. And uh, but I would definitely say um, the one band that definitely hooked me on rock and roll would probably be ACDC. Now, was it a particular album or song? What was it about ACDC that that hooked you? Um. Oh, let me think. Um. I would say I was raised on both uh, Highway to Hell and Back in Black, so uh, both the Bob Scott and Brian Johnson eras. Um, I, I can't really think of like which song exactly got me hooked, but um, yeah, it was definitely like those two eras. Excellent. What uh, after ACDC and Twisted Sister? How how did your music taste evolve? Um. I would say my parents definitely helped me with that. Um, when I was about 11, I had a bit of a, um, I had a bit of a punk phase, uh, until I was about 13 or 14. Um, so, um, but like I said, I was kind of all over the place. I was really into heavy metal and, uh, and then I got into punk, like, um, well, like the more mainstream punk, like Green Day and, you know, Blink-182 and all that. So, um, and then uh, when I was in high school, that was when I got into the grunge, you know, 90s Seattle sound. And uh, I'd say ever since then, a lot of my music has been, uh, you know, in the 90s era, 80s, 90s. Now, what was it about the grunge movement that really attracted you? Well, um... I would definitely say their uh, their lyrics and their uh, their ability to kind of be all over the place when it comes to music style. So, like uh, Soundgarden, for instance, that was the first grunge band that I got into, and uh, every album was completely different. You know, they still had their own you know originality, like their own style, but like each album brought something new to the table, and. Uh, Alice in Chains did the same thing with, you know, facelift to dirt to tripod, jar flies, all that. Um, those were the two grunge bands that I was definitely more into. I never really got into Nirvana or Pearl Jam or anything like that. I was definitely more attracted to the heavier side of quote unquote grunge music. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, being a child of the eighties and listening to the music, the hard rock and heavy metal music of that era when everything kind of changed over, when the grunge movement came in, it was difficult for a guy like me to adjust to that type of music because it was so different than what I was used to listening to. And the two bands that I always liked because they had a heavier sound were Soundgarden and Alice in Chains. In fact, I saw Anthrax and Alice in Chains. I saw Alice in Chains open up for them, geez, back in the 90s. And it was a great show. And they put on a great, great performance but I was always attracted to those two, along with Stone, Stone Temple Pilots, because they had a little bit more of an edge to them, more so than oh, yeah, like you. Course. Yeah, the more so than like you with, with Pearl Jam and Nirvana, who I never really got into Nirvana. And Pearl Jam took me a while to warm up to them. I appreciate their music. I guess I can you know consider myself a fan, but I wouldn't put them in, in one of my top five or top ten favorite bands. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, Pearl Jam, um, that was the same way for me. It took me a while to warm up to them, too, because I do like a few songs. I have, I think I have a couple albums from them. But, um, you know, I would sit down, I would listen to them, and it's like, 
man, this is not, you know, it's not the same, you know? And that's the thing about the Seattle sound. Each band, there wasn't really a, much of a Seattle sound. It was just basically a group of bands that all happened to know each other and kind of just did their own thing. Mm-hmm. And that was the thing about, that was the other thing that attracted me to the grunge movement. And you mentioned Stone Temple Pilots, too. They're, besides Soundgarden, they were definitely another one of the first grunge bands that I got into. Yes, great band, great band. I, you know, one of the things that was such a cr- contrast from that movement coming out of the 80s glam or, or metal scene was the difference in tone of the song. You know, you really had more of a fun party type atmosphere with the bands of the 80s. Of course, there were your Iron Maidens and there were your Metallicas and Anthraxes and whatnot. But the majority and the bands that were huge at that time Metallica really didn't break mainstream until 89 with with one or was it 88 and then of course they had the black album in 92 or 91 um but the whole atmosphere the Van Halen the Aerosmiths the Motley Crues it was a completely different atmosphere and it was an adjustment being a fan of that music it was not something that happened overnight. It took me a while to warm up to a few of those bands. Another one that I liked, too, was Smashing Pumpkins. Oh, yeah. Smashing Pumpkins is great. Yeah, local to uh, to yeah. Chicago here as well. Um, yes, yes. But the irony of this conversation is that we are going to be talking about Soundgarden today, and this is going to be pre-recorded on May 18th, which just so happens to be the two-year anniversary of the passing of Chris Cornell. Yes, yeah. And I have to tell yeah. you, you know, if, if, if you haven't checked out her YouTube page, Ari's really passionate about the subject matter of Soundgarden and Chris Cornell, along with Alice in Chains, and she's got some really good stuff on her YouTube page. Once again, that's American Nightmare. Uh, and we're going to talk about the music of Soundgarden today. Yes. Yeah, thank you, by the way. Thank you for uh, plugging my channel there. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's begin. I mean, I am a fan of Chris Cornell. I was a fan of Soundgarden. I, In terms of Chris Cornell's music, I was more of a fan of Audio Slave. Another great band. You know what? I, I got to say, me too. <laughs> me too. I actually got, I actually got into uh, Audio Slave before I got into Soundgarden. Um I, the first time I heard Audio Slave, I was like, I was probably about 10 or 11 years old. I was probably closer to 11. And uh, I was just, oh, oh my God. <laughs> it was it was amazing. Um, and it took me a little bit longer to get into Soundgarden, but eventually that happened too. And yeah, I was just blown away. I'm blown away by everything he does. Yeah, such an amazing talent. You know, of course, it's a shame that he's no longer here with us and making music. And one of my biggest disappointments is the fact that I never got to see him in concert. And I've seen, yeah, yeah, I've seen hundreds of bands and hundreds of concerts. And there's a handful that I have that, um, I wish I could have seen. And Chris Cornell is definitely at the top of the list. Thankfully we have things like, you know, thankfully we have things like YouTube where we can see performances, but as you know, it's, it's just not the same as, Getting that, uh, yeah, you know, the, yeah, the the goosebumps of seeing such a great talent in concert. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So let's begin. I, you know, we want to talk about the music and the albums of Soundgarden. I figured, kind of mix it up a little bit instead of starting from the first album. Let's start with your favorite album. Okay, um, 
I had a feeling you'd ask me this. <laughs> so um, I would definitely say, you know, a lot of people say super unknown. And, you know, of course, I agree. You know, I love super unknown. You know, every song on that album is, is a masterpiece. And that album was so well composed and orchestrated. Um, but I would definitely say, I would say, um, personal preference, my favorite album is actually Bad Motorfinger, uh, the album before Super Unknown. Um, because, uh, for one, that was probably the very first grunge album that I bought that I, that I owned. And, uh, that one is, uh, it's definitely a lot heavier. And, uh, I think this is, it's hard to, it's hard to say because it's, it's very subjective, but, um, in terms of vocal range, uh, Chris Cornell did a lot more on Bad Motorfinger. You know, he sang the high notes and then all that, and he just went, you know, freaking wild with with some of his vocals, like on Slaves and Bulldozers. And uh, that's always what attracted to me. Uh, that's always what attracted me to his his style, and that's why you know Soundgarden's my my favorite band. Yeah, no, his his delivery on that album, vocal wise is incredible and you know the songwriting some really memorable songs on that album one of the most memorable lyrics is on that album feeling california or no look in california feeling minnesota um and just a yeah, yeah and, and it just proved his how introspective he was on what he was writing about what yeah yeah so so, so would you go super unknown number two or what, where would you go after after that album um, definitely, yeah. Super Unknown would definitely be a very close number two. And hell, even on like different days, it could be like Super Unknown 1, Bad Motor Finger 2. But I think, you know, always, you know, in my heart of hearts, you know, deep down, I think Bad Motor Finger is probably the most attractive, my my, fav- my personal favorite Soundgarden album. Now, what are the songs that, that connect with you on that album and why do they connect with you? Um... I would say the first one that comes to mind uh, would be Room a Thousand Years Wide um, because that also showed how eclectic Soundgarden was because that, that song has a freaking saxophone in it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. so it's like they, they kind of borrowed from like everything, you know, every genre of music, you know, jazz, you know, heavy blues, um, heavy metal, a little bit of punk, you know, and and then, of course, you know, they're labeled grunge <laughs> mm-hmm. because that's, <laughs> that's how it goes. <laughs> what else? I mean, like, they, so they connect to you. So why did they connect with you? Like, what was it about those songs that, you know, gave you that passion about their music? Well, songs like um, like Room a Thousand Years Wide and Outshined, like you said, their lyrics their lyrics were so introspective. Um, Chris Cornell actually wrote Outshine, but the guitarist, uh, Kim Thale, I really hope I'm saying his name right. I can never get that right. But um, he, he actually wrote the lyrics to Room a Thousand Years Wide. And see, uh, seeing like all members of the band contribute to, you know, pieces of the album, that is also what made me so... Um, that's what made me so attractive to songs like that because it's like, you know, you know, you're mostly thinking about like Chris Cornell when it comes to Soundgarden, but it's like, Hey, you know, these other guys have a lot to offer too. So, um, and you know, Kim say, apparently, you know, just, just reading the lyrics to room a thousand years wide, he had just as much to offer as Chris Cornell. 
uh, in terms of lyricism and, um, you know, any sort of like philosophical, um, you know, uh, musings about the world, you know, about, you know, people around, you know, people around them and, and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Is there, is there a song on that album that maybe didn't grab you at first, but you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of believing that music is all about timing and sometimes a song or a band maybe doesn't grab you at the moment when it grabs everybody else, but then five, six years, you know, 10 years later, you hear a song by that same band and for whatever reason, whether it's you had more life experiences, whether you are, you know, your tastes have opened up a little bit for whatever reason, it's almost like hearing a new song and you rediscover this band that you kind of gave a pass way back when, where now you're playing catch up and you're discovering what you believe is new music to you when everybody else has been listening to, you know, for, for a decade or more. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's happened to me with a lot of songs. Um, but on Bad Motor Fingers specifically, um, I'd say the first one that comes to mind is uh, Drawing Flies. Uh, that's one of their deep cuts. It's, you know, a shorter song, but it's um, it's so, like, fast-paced. Um, but originally, it's like, when I first heard it, it's like, what the hell is he talking about? It's like, what? <laughs> it's like, what is this song? Um but, you know, after a few more listens, it's like, oh, my God, this song is, you know, this song is amazing. It's, you know, it works. It fits, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I would definitely say. Yeah, I love when that happens. You know, you listen to an album, and I always try to give it two or three spins before I really kind of make a judgment on it to see how it connects with me. And sure, yeah. It happens all the time where a song doesn't grab me at first. And then I'll listen to that album a year or two later, and I'll be like, oh, this is a really good song. Like, why didn't I like this before? Yeah. And it happens a lot. So it really does. Like, So I always get upset, you know, when, when I hear people converse or, you know, message each other. Oh, your music sucks. Or, that song sucks. It doesn't. You know, oh, every, I know. It, I know everyone's music taste is different. And everyone's music is more or less, and I've said it before, their own religion and it's grabbed them and it's part of their soul. It's part of their being and everyone's palate's different. So I understand the machismo of saying, Oh, this sucks and this sucks. And, but you know, that song may suck to you now, but 10 years from now it may, you may rediscover it and think it's one of the best songs you've ever heard. Definitely. So, so after bad motor finger, they released super unknown. They're, they're arguably their biggest record, their biggest album, pretty much what they're most known for. How does that album connect with you differently than the previous one? I would say Super Unknown is definitely a lot more personal for me um, than Bad Motor Finger. You know, with Bad Motor Finger, you have, you know, uh, speedy guitars and, you know, wailing vocals and all that. But Super Unknown, um, y- you have that too, but you also have a lot more personal um, deep, you know, lyrics. So like the song fell on black days. That was, that was the song that really got me at the sound garden was fell on black days. Um, it's so bleak, but at the same time, it's like some days it's like you, you listen to it and you know, every second of it, you really get into it and you feel exactly what he's feeling. 
he he has he had that uh, way about him, you know. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, when you can put the listener in your own head and connect with them in that in that regard, it, it's a it's a wonderful thing. It really is, and and not too many people can do that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, fell on Black Days, yeah. you know, was 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 the one that connected you with you first. What other songs on that album have a connection with you? Um, definitely, uh, the day I tried to live. Um, and see, this is what kind of makes me angry about a song like that. Um, ever since Chris Cornell died, um, people have, and even before he died, people have completely misinterpreted that song. Um, it's like he said, you know, in interviews back in the nineties, they're taking the word live too seriously and they think it's a, it's a suicide note or something. No, that's, that's not, that's not what it is. It's literally about, um, trying your best to not be antisocial and trying to put yourself out there into the world and in a way, um, trying to be like everybody else, um, maybe to be happier or to just uh, find some more company instead of, you know, being alone all the time. And that's what the song is about. And that was another one of the songs that really made me appreciate Chris Cornell as a lyricist, because that's, that's how I was, you know, when I was younger, you know, in high school and all that, I was, I was the exact same way. So being that age, you know, 15 and, you know, kind of not really sure what I'm doing, you know, in terms of that. Um, that's a song that really connected with me on a personal level and really helped me in some, in some tough times. That's a great thing about music. Music connect is a companion. It can help you. It can comfort you. Um, you know, it can help motivate you. It can do all those things. And people who really connect with the music utilize that throughout their lives. And, you know, one of the one of the greatest interviews I ever heard was when David Lee Roth of Van Halen said, "When you hear a song, listen to it, wear it out, listen to it over and over again, because after a certain point, that song acts as a time machine. Because whenever you hear it, it brings you back to that period of time when you when it connected with you, and all the memories that surrounded that moment come back to life." And it's a very good point. It's a very, very interesting way to look at music. And I, and I, I believe that. Yeah, definitely. Me too. Um, I had no idea that David Lee Roth said, said that. <laughs> if you want to, if you want to watch some interesting stuff, watch the David Lee Roth show on YouTube. And he, he I mean, everybody has an image of David Lee Roth doing the splits and, you know, shaking his hair and the videos he is a very, very yeah, kind of a wild party guy. Yeah, but he is a very well-read and very intelligent person. And for anyone out there listening, if they want to spend, you know, in their car, you can put it on. It's a podcast, and it's the David Lee Roth show. And he had one before, prior, an older one. But he is such an interesting dude, and he knows a lot about life and a lot about things. He's very intelligent, very well-read, and I encourage you to give his podcast a couple listens because it's great. Definitely. So yeah, yeah. I'm going to have to do that myself. Yeah. Check it out. I'm telling you, you won't be, you, you can thank me later. Ari. <laughs> so, I will. I'm sure I will. <laughs> so super unknown, bad motor finger uh, are the albums that connect with you. Where do the other albums fall in, 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 
in your realm and in your listening habits? Well, um, I would say after Bad Motorfinger, um, each album after that, that's kind of where my rankings go to. So after Super Unknown, there was Down on the Upside, which uh, has songs like Pretty News and No Attention, uh, Burden in My Hand, Blow Up the Outside World. That is an amazing album. I know it doesn't really compare to Super Unknown and, and Bad Motorfinger, but it, there's still like a lot of deep cuts on there that are just as you know, hard hitting as, as everything on super unknown. Um, one of the songs that I really got into, and this was another one where it was like, you know, I first heard it and it's like, Oh, you know, it's okay. It's a little slow. But then after I read the lyrics, you know, it was, it was like, Whoa, you know, Oh my God. It's like, how have I not, you know, how did I not, you know, hear this before? And that song was zero chance. Um, that one is, it's a lot more mellow, but it's, Oh my God, when you read the lyrics, it's like, oh my God, you know, it's kind of hard to put into words, but it's like, that's, you know, that's the feeling. It's like you're left completely speechless with a song like that. So what is it about those lyrics? I mean, can you speak to how it affected you or how it connected with you? Um, well, the song, uh, the song kind of has the same subject material as the day I tried to live. The, um, the chorus is a lot. Um, more bleak and it's a lot deeper so it goes um oh let me think sorry (laughs) let me think about this um they say if you look hard you'll find your way back home born without a friend and bound to die alone wow and that was that was a line that like hit me really hard and uh especially after he died you know um that was one that i started to appreciate a lot more um, the deeper I got into that album. It's a, it's another great album. I have that in my collection too. I've got all three of those albums. What would be the one yeah. that, that you would think is the most underrated? Most underrated? Um, I would say for sure down on the upside. Okay. Um, it's, uh, that's, that's one where, um, a lot of the, uh, the deep cuts, like, um, the, the deep cuts are actually, in my opinion, some of them are better than the singles. Because most people know that album for, for like, Pretty News and, and all that. And um, But uh, Tighter and Tighter and No Attention, Overfloater. Overfloater is one of my favorite Soundgarden songs. That, that one is absolutely amazing. Now, after that album, what in the collection of Soundgarden is something that you like to listen to? Um, after that album, I would say, um, their second album, uh, Louder Than Love, um, that's, see, that one's a lot more different. That one came out in the 80s, um, and that one actually kind of follows a little more, um, of the glam metal side, but, like, in a satirical way. So they have songs like Big Dumb Sex, where it's, uh, it's basically a glam metal song, but it's also kind of spitting in the face of glam metal. It's, it's hilarious. Um, it's, uh, and it's also, you know, it's also a really fun song. You know, it's interesting. I saw an interview with Chris Cornell about a month or two ago, one that I had not seen yet. And he talks about the glam metal scene and he talks about how music got to be more about the look and and about the image than it did about the song. And I completely agree with him. You know, I've always said that the eighties is really kind of three parts 
you know, the beginning of the eighties is more edgy. It's, it's a lot more raw. You go from the mid, you know, to the mid eighties where the glam movement begins, you know, especially after, if you ever get a chance to look at the back cover of theater of pain by Motley Crue, and you see the image of Motley Crue, everything that comes after that is because of that back cover of that album. And then you, oh, have, yeah. then you have the late 80s, early 90s, where bands were getting signed, not because of how they played, but because of how they looked. I remember when I would go to the grocery store with my mother when I was a kid, and I didn't want to sit in aisle to aisle and go and shop with my mom. So I went to the magazine section, and I would take out all the rock magazines, and I would just start reading about bands and interviews with you know, some of my favorite favorites back then. But I remember towards the end of the decade when I started looking at magazines, there were bands that I never even heard of but looked like other bands. And I think when Chris Cornell speaks of that, I think a lot of people want to blame Nirvana as killing the 80s glam metal scene. And there's, you know, I, I kind of believe Metallica had more to do with it. But in the end, the bands themselves and the music themselves is what's to blame because the music got very thin in the end and it got very kind of cookie cutterish with one band. Definitely. Yeah. One band didn't look or did look like the other band and they all sounded the same. You couldn't tell them apart and it really lost its identity. And the grunge movement comes with Nirvana, although I never connected with Nirvana for whatever reason, they just never grabbed me. There was a whole new scene, a whole new sense of center with the lyrics, with the presentation, where it was more about the music. It was more about like the early 80s and the 70s, where it was more about the music and what they were singing about than it was about how, how high their hair was teased and how much, you know, what their leather pants looked like. It was such a refreshing look, but it went completely in the opposite direction. It's like, it's like the glam metal scene went as far as it possibly could. And then this grunge scene just brought it back the complete other way. And I think Soundgarden, everyone talks about Nirvana and Pearl Jam as kind of being the big two out of that era. Because they're probably the most popular. Because, you know, they, yeah. they, they had more yeah. songs on, you know, Nirvana had, you know, it smells like Team Spirit and, their, and the other songs. And, of course, Pearl Jam has their catalog. But, of course. Yeah. But, yeah. Now, but and I know you mentioned your college professor, you know, when he started talking about the grunge era, of course, he brings in Nirvana. But I think Alice, <laughs> yep. yeah, I think yeah. Alice in Chains and Soundgarden offered so much more to the listener because I think they were way more complex than Nirvana and Pearl Jam. That... Definitely. Yeah, I, I think if you were to start, if you never heard grunge music, or if you're one of those people who grew up in that era, like I did, who absolutely refute it, right? There's people that will not even listen to any of that music just because they're so they still harbor this anger towards that movement is killing that scene. But if you were to exactly. pick, yeah, if you were to pick a couple bands out of that era that are extremely talented, extremely complex, great music, heavier music. It's definitely Soundgarden and Alice in Chains. For sure. For sure. Definitely. So when I look at your YouTube page and your posts on Twitter, you're also, yeah. also you're also a big Chris Cornell fan. I mean, it, you know, your 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 appreciation for Chris Cornell doesn't stop with just Soundgarden. And you mentioned in the beginning of this interview that you like actually like Audio Slave. So 
So following, yeah, so so following his career, what, what is it about Chris Cornell outside of Soundgarden, outside of Audio Slave that connects with you? Um, well, if you were to, if you were to watch like any interview with him, um, you'll notice he's not, uh, he's not very, um, what's the word I want? He's not outlandish. He doesn't have a big ego. He, he doesn't really like, you know, think he's, you know, king shit or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, he's, he's incredibly down to earth. He's so humble and he's so honest. Um, you know, anytime anybody asks him about, um, you know, his music or um, his fame, he he doesn't really give like a generic, you know, cookie cutter answer. He he really just he um, he's he like I said, he's he's honest. He's honest. He's incredibly intelligent. He's um, and like I said, he's so down to earth. And that's that's what made me appreciate him as a musician and as a lyricist more because you know when you when you think about rock stars a lot of rock rock stars especially if you're not a fan of rock music you think they they have these big egos and they think they're the greatest singer in the world and the thing is chris cornell was one of the greatest singers in the world but he would never tell you that he he would probably be like yeah i'm all right but really you know listen to these guys you know he was always like uh thinking about other musicians that he thought were you know, that, that he was influenced by, that he seemed to promote more than himself. That's true. Yeah, he, he's very humble. It's one of the things that's always, I've always appreciated about him is when you, you don't get the rock, you know he's a rock star, but you, you don't get the rock star, the lead singer disease ego that a lot of people in his position have. Um, you know, I, I one of the things that when people talk about his death and they talk about his music, it's mentioned sometimes, but not as much as I think it should is how he overcame addiction. You know, he was pretty, he was pretty messed up, you know, during the height of their, their, during the height of Soundgarden. And, you know, he cleaned himself for a long time. And I, you know, I know this is a sensitive subject for a lot of people. I know he was taking medication for that addiction. But that medication yeah. that he had had side effects, and one of those side effects, unfortunately, was suicidal thoughts. So, you know, when when they talk about his death and they talk about him taking his own life, I don't think he was of sound of mind because of the medication that he was on. I'm uh, I'm really glad you brought this up, actually, because um, you know I I never like to talk about it too much because it's always like you know appreciate his music, appreciate what he did while he was here. You know, don't focus on his death. Don't focus on how he died. Just like with Lance Staley, you know, uh, addiction, you know, unfortunately he never overcame it, but Chris Cornell, you know, he, he did get sober and he was sober for a long time. The problem was, like you said, he was on that medication. Um, and like you said, one of the side effects was, you know, suicidal ideation and, but the thing is, you know, you something like that, you almost have to be sort of hush-hush about because there's always, there's the topic of, you know, mental illness. You know, with Kurt Cobain, you know, it's it's almost like the, the, grunge, the grunge scene, you know, a lot of people think, you know, it's either drugs or suicide. And it's like, no, that's not the case. You know, it's so much more than that. You know, it's 
and it's not even it's not even that that's the thing i'm kind of getting off topic here but um but yeah going back to what you said you know i'm really glad you brought that up and i'm glad you know some people have a more of an open mind about that because yes you know chris cornell did deal with stuff like that for a while but when you look closer into it there's there's something there was something else wrong there that yeah. had nothing to do with him no absolutely i mean there there are witnesses who talk about him before even the even the day before um and and, and hours yeah. leading up to the show where he was fine he was normal and i don't know what transpired in the last few hours of his life but from what i read and i don't you know i don't know if this is out there or if this is actual fact but from what i read or remember reading he had taken more than he probably should have on the medication that he was. And that really could have affected his mind. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, the, uh, the drug that he was prescribed, um, uh, from what I read, it was for a, um, it was for a shoulder injury he had a few years ago and, um, and it was keeping him up at night and he needed, you know, and of course touring, you know, extensively that has an effect on the body and so um, I think he was taking it just to just to sleep. Um, but again, one of the main side effects was, you know, suicidal thoughts, unfortunately. And uh, combined with, um, unfortunately, the other stuff that he was taking, I think he was taking some uh, some severe cold medicine that, you know, based on personal experience, that stuff is combined with other medications that can really, you know, mess you up. So he wasn't on medication to assist in his addiction, in his urges. It was more for the shoulder injury. Yeah, I think so. I okay. believe so. For okay. a while, yeah, he was on the, um, uh, years ago, I think he was on some of the, um, you know, com- combating addiction, you know, medication. But I think uh, up to the time of his death, I'm not exactly sure if that is what um, if that's the reason why he was taking that medication, you know, it's another example of being overprescribed. I mean, how many lives have been lost and we can name the famous people, but there's countless others across the country that have been lost because of overprescribing or doctors mixing medications and they don't truly know what the side effects are or how they, how an individual will react if they are on a you know different sets of medication unbeknownst to one doctor to the next and you just have to ask yourself how does this continue to happen when we have the technology to that 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 could allow one doctor to the next doctor to see what a man or woman is taking when they're under care yeah yeah definitely that's you know unfortunately that kind of gets put on the back burner because you know, of course, we have, you know, a lot of other things going on, you know, in the yeah. world. But a lot of what we don't talk about that's really affecting us is the, you know, the legal drugs. You know, because, of course, we're thinking of, like, you know, when we think of drugs, we think of, like, you know, the illegal, like, heroin and, you know, everything like that. Sure. But, um, you know, it's some of the legal stuff. It's it's just as bad or maybe or even worse. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't get talked about because, like, you know, we trust doctors and everything. And But like you said, 
everybody's being overprescribed, and it's a it's a serious problem. Yeah, it, it is a definite serious problem. And going back to Chris Cornell with what happened to him, you know, one has to think, you know, listen, when people have a lot of money, like a Chris Cornell or like any other rock star or actor or athlete, they have access to things that you and I don't have. And, you know, they have money to gain them that access. And I'm not saying Chris Cornell did this or whatever, but there are probably instances where, in situations where someone does pay someone to get an extra prescription or, or a prescription to this without going through the proper channels. And that could definitely affect what people are, are doing and, and mixing, you know, having a cocktails of, of medication. But it all goes back to another issue that kind of coincides with the you know, the, the overprescribing and the, the addictions is the mental health issue. And, you know, when you're taking a lot of those drugs, it really does affect your psychosis. It affects your mind. Um, whether you want to believe it or not, you're putting a foreign agent into your body that mixes with the chemical. And I think a lot of that with Chris Cornell um, affected him. And it affected the, his outlook in his in his mind. I mean, people who went to the show said he looked a little off during the show. So I don't know when he had taken the medication. But by all accounts, up to leading to that day, he was of healthy mind and of sound mind. Now, I could be wrong. I don't, I'm not an insider. I'm not someone that has information behind me that I know of that no one else knows of. But just based on the yeah, circumstances, I mean, I... I he seemed to be fine. He see, I mean, you know, there are people that had talked to him a day or two before, even that day. I think his wife even talked to him that day before the show. He seemed fine. So something happened. Yeah. And, and I don't know if we'll ever know what happened or how things transpired to the exact moment that he did pass. But it definitely was a great loss. When you think of the two monster bands that he was in, Soundgarden, and Audio Slave, and plus his solo work, which gets overlooked. His solo work is just as magnificent as his, you know, the stuff with Soundgarden and um, oh yeah, of course, um, Audio Slave, and yeah. there's Temple of the Dog. It's just it yeah. goes on. It's such a body yeah. of work for for an individual that went too soon. What do you, what do you think he would be doing, or where do you think Chris Cornell would have evolved? Too. I mean, do you, I know he was doing the Soundgarden. I know there were talks about him doing another Audio Slave tour or album. I know Tom Morello spoke of it shortly after his death. He definitely had his solo material. Yeah. Where do you where do you think he was going musically? Um, I think uh, he was probably going back to his roots um, with uh, with Soundgarden and Audio Slave. Um, you know, unfortunately, they were uh, they were actually working. Uh, Soundgarden was actually working on a new album, and they had the the music down um, before Chris died. And uh, with Audio Slave, they they performed a show, the anti inaugural ball. And man, when when I heard that they were uh, they were getting back together, even if it was just for one night, I was like, yes, you know, it's like yes, it's finally happening. Um, so I think it was entirely possible we. We probably could have seen a fourth Audio Slave album, a seventh, um, sixth or seventh, uh, seventh, I think, Soundgarden album. And uh, one of the songs that was uh, posthumously released, um, When Bad Does Good, um, 
you know, some, we probably could have seen some more solo work, uh, from him. And, uh, but I think, um, it was, it was entirely possible that he was, you know, trying to put every, you know, all the bands back together. And, uh, and yeah, that, that would have been really cool to see. And it's, that's, that's the other reason why the whole thing is such a tragedy. It's so sad. We, we could have, you know, thinking like what could have been, um, that's, that's the hardest thing to think about. For sure. Yeah. No, what could have been and, you know, where I, I always love when a, when an artist evolves. In fact, a lot of these episodes have moments in them when I talk about the evolution of a certain musician, you know, whether it's a Randy Rhodes and whether it's a Richie Cotton or whether it's another band, I love it when they don't just mail it in and play the same thing that they've played before. We all know the bands that do that. And that's one of the things that I always oh, yeah. appreciate of Chris Cornell, whether he was in Soundgarden or Audio Slave or his solo stuff. He always tried to stretch himself. He always tried to test his own limits. And as a music fan and someone that digs new perspective, he was always doing that. He was all, you know, whether, whether he did a cover of a song and the way he approached it was completely different than what the song was. I mean, everyone has seen the one video where it's the music for the U2 song one and it's the lyrics for the Metallica song one. Yeah. You know, who, yeah. who would have thought to do that? And, and Chris Cornell I did. It, um, it, yeah. It's, it's incredible. I think what ended up happening with that was, um, he was trying to, he was trying to get the lyrics to U2's one and he was going to do a cover of, you know, U2, but somebody gave him the lyrics to Metallica's one. And, uh, he just went with it, you know, and it, and it worked. Yeah, it did. <laughs> it was a really special moment. Even the, the the cover version of Nothing Compares to You, which is the song written by Prince for Sinead O'Connor. Uh, incredible. Yeah. Inc- yeah. Absolutely incredible. It's, it, it's, it's spine tingling how great that, that version is. Oh yeah, definitely. After Prince died, I, I listened to that cover on, on loop. It was like 10 times a day, you know, like clockwork. It's like, you know, it's like, oh, I got to hear this song. It's like, I, I can't get enough of it. What is beautiful rendition. Yeah, it's, it is an emotional rendition, especially now that he's passed. And, you know, you know that Prince is no longer with us. It's such a, it's such a song that connects people of, you know, the, the, the Prince fan base with the Chris Cornell fan base. And it's such That's an amazing right. moment. It really is. What, um, if you had to choose your quintessential Chris Cornell song, what would that be? Oh, um, whew. <laughs> man. Um, I would say for me, um, quintessential, uh, Chris Cornell song, that would probably be audio slaves. Um, shadow on the sun. Great song. Uh, yes, yeah, definitely. Um, that's for uh, per- personal personal wise. That's definitely like my favorite Chris Cornell song. Like he, you know, out of his entire you know career. Um, but not to mention, he kind of puts um, the whole song has a little bit of everything from his previous careers. You know, introspective lyrics. You know, hard rock. You know, a great a great hook. You know, great rhythm and. Uh, and that was that was what got me uh, into Chris Cornell's music initially, and 
it's like, you know, I still don't know what, what the song is about exactly or, or what he's talking about specifically. But, you know, it's like you can kind of, you know, interpret it for yourself. It's kind of one of those open-ended ones that you can just, um, you know, pick out a line and it's like, okay, you know, this, this is what he could be talking about or this is, this is what I get out of it. You know, this is how I feel about it. Definitely. Um, I love all the Audio Slave stuff. And that's kind of one of the things that was disappointing about that band is that, you know, they had three great albums and then they just didn't make music anymore. It wasn't like there was this big to-do that yeah. they were breaking up. They just decided to go their own ways. And I think they left on good terms. I mean, I read some stuff where there were some issues with some of the band members, but I think that's in every band. I mean, yeah. tell me, tell me what band who isn't popular that doesn't have egos colliding and, and, you know, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's like, it's, it's kind of inevitable. It's like when you're writing music with a certain um, number of people for a certain number of years, chances are somewhere along the way, you're going to end up having some problems. Yeah. And especially personality wise. I mean, you've probably in most bands because they're on stage and they're creating music and they're playing for hundreds of thousands of people. They're pretty much all a type personalities, right? I mean, no one, no one goes yeah. on stage and puts themselves out there unless they're that type of guy or that type of girl, you know? And exactly. when you're writing and you think your stuff that you're writing is the best. And so does every other, you know, the three, four other members of the band think that, you know, their stuff is great too. It does cause issues. And then you, you know, you, you add the, the lifestyle in there. It, it's amazing how some bands can stay intact for a long time and some, you know, really kind of fizzle away. Not that Audio Slave fizzled. It's just they, I, I do remember reading about some, some potential personality clashes and then they stop. And that was yeah. the, that was the, was it the Revolution album? Was their last one? Oh, the, yeah, Revelations. Revelations. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And, yeah. uh, yeah, so so I remember reading that, but I always knew that Tom Morello and Chris Cornell, and I don't know about the other two guys in the band, always stayed in touch and always had a good relationship. They wouldn't have been able to do that show after you know the anti inaugural ball show if they if they hadn't had a good relationship. Um, yeah, of course. And it's kind of what happened with with Soundgarden. I, I'm not too familiar with the details with how Soundgarden broke up, but they kind of ended the same way Audio Slave did. They kind of just moved on to different things and yeah you know maybe that's just you know indicative of those bands at that time or the way chris cornell likes to move from different projects to different projects or maybe not move to different projects but find ways to stretch himself musically and artistically definitely um even shortly after or shortly before audio slave broke up chris cornell was already writing um songs for his second solo album carry on and those those were the kinds of songs that probably didn't belong on an audio slave album but um he wrote them anyway and um and i I think the uh creative process for him um there's like i said you know i don't know anything this is just my my guess but um maybe he felt uh a little too you know uh confined being an audio slave, like he couldn't really, um, he, uh, there wasn't any way for him to expand and, you know, he wanted to move on to other things. Very true. And that happens way more than we'd like it to happen 
where yeah. you know a band is together and they're producing great music album after album and they can't you know certain artists in within the band can't put a certain song on an album because it's just not what their fan base is expecting and that's almost on us as fans as much as it is as it is the band right i mean the fans when they hear yeah. a certain artist they want the majority of the fans want what they know what they what what they're familiar with Anytime yeah. you go you go off that grid and you start experimenting and you ask the listener to evolve with them, that doesn't always happen. I, I can't think of an instance where maybe, you know, maybe a band like Rush, you know, as they evolved in the eighties with the keyboards, more keyboard heavy songs, but that yeah. fan base is so so rabid that they'll accept anything by Rush. Oh yeah. Um but but yeah, that's one example. But bands that change their musically or change drastically, I you know I always experience them going back to what they sounded like because maybe that newer music wasn't as well received, and I think that's really on us as fans that we need to learn that we can take the journey with the artist as well. You know, just don't have any expectations; just listen and see if you like it. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Definitely. I think that's one of the reasons why Soundgarden was so underrated is because, um, like I said in the beginning of this, um, you know, every album is different and each time they're evolving their own sound or maybe they're going back to their roots um, while adding something new to the table. And uh, that's the thing. And that's probably why they're so underrated and, you know, they didn't sell as many records or anything, but um yeah, it's like they were they were very eclectic bands. You know, they had, you know, different. They uh, they pulled from different genres, and uh, each album was something new. Absolutely, absolutely. In closing, what you know, final thoughts do you have on you know Soundgarden and their music catalog? Where would you tell someone to begin if they wanted to go and listen to them for the first time? Well, um, I would say start pretty much anywhere. Um, because like I said, they have a lot to offer, but you know, give them a chance. You know, if there's something that you don't like right away, um, you know, maybe move on to another song. Um, but don't be, you know, keep an open mind. And, uh, even with something like, you know, Soundgarden and Audio Slave, you know, it's, uh, one of the main things I would tell them is um, even though, you know, it may not be what you're expecting, just go with the flow. Just, just uh, go along for the ride and uh, you definitely won't regret it. This is definitely a band that everybody should listen to at least once in their life. Yep. I mean, sometimes the journey takes you into unexpected routes, but Nonetheless, it's a journey and it's go along for the ride. You may enjoy it. You may love it. There are so many bands that I passed on when I was growing up that I went back and listened to years later that it's like discovering a whole new band. And I, Definitely. I, I, I do get frustrated when people don't want to listen to new music, the quote unquote music lovers and fans. I love music. I love, oh, it's, I'm such a music fan. And then you put something yeah. new or different in front of them and they reject it almost immediately without even listening. And 
it's yeah. the the fan really needs to 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 rise up and step up and give things a chance. Get out of your get out of your uh your your box, you know, and and try something different. Yeah. Yeah, get out of your comfort zone. It's like it's almost like a kind of like a little kid, you know, trying something like trying a new food for the first time. It's like, "No, I don't like this." You know, I but it's like, you know, you haven't even tried it. You know, just don't be afraid to try new things. And that goes for pretty much anything in the world, but music especially. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Ari, it was a pleasure having you on. Once again, you can find her on Twitter at A Night 1990 and on YouTube at American Nightmare. Her video blogs and presentation are incredible. A lot of passion about the music she loves. I highly recommend it. And again, once I do appreciate you coming on and being on the show, and I look forward to having you on again down the road. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to do this again. Absolutely. Yeah. Take care and uh, have yourself a good day, and I'll, and I'll see you on Twitter. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.